This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Conspiranormal. Yes, welcome uh, to Conspiranormal, everybody. We just did an awesome interview with uh, Jack Brewer uh, about his new book, Wayward Sons, the NICAP, and the IC intelligence community. So uh, we're going to be speaking to him in just a little bit. Of course, we've already recorded it, but uh, we're tagging this at the beginning. So we wanted to uh, come on and talk about, um, well, I guess what everybody else is talking about, the whole Astro World thing. Um, and the spell of synchro mystical bullshit. Yeah, there's there's a lot going on because um, I'm sure everybody knows what happened in Astro World. Like they said like eight people uh, died at the this, like... People got crushed and trampled on at this concert, this festival in um, Houston, Texas. And the whole internet has just gone crazy with this. So so this is kind of something you've been sending me a lot about. And there's been a lot of criticism about like some of the artwork involved, the design. Uh, people have been saying that this is like a satanic ritual and a portal to hell and all this sacrifice. Kind of stuff. Everybody, of course, the police don't really know what has happened. They're investigating it. But, of course, the entire Internet has already put its entire, like, 50 cents into this whole thing. They've so. got all the answers, of course. Right. So, you got some thoughts on this. And I've been I've been looking at it for a little bit of the day today, too. So, Well, I mean, this is just, like, the terrible result, the promotion of synchro mystic thinking to the masses and uh you know you've got every teenage girl on tiktok giving her uh de-occultation of uh symbolism etc particularly revolving around uh travis scott's performance he puts on this thing i guess he's from houston and People got trampled. Everything has very um, explainable circumstances behind it, especially when people like bum rush a show and break the gates and it's already over overbooked and overcrowded. Mm-hmm. And uh, the crowd just doesn't give a shit and uh, about their fellow concert goers. 
um, whether that's a generational thing or not. Um, yeah, I mean, people died. Uh, it was terrible, but uh, the, uh, you know, dark synchro mystical analysis uh, commenced immediately. Um, and I've just been more than anything like disappointed to see such young people blame an artist's expression for what happened and people who you know believe everything's a conspiracy or people who don't understand how anything works and the fact is that all these different pieces of art and aesthetics that went into this uh it's probably like teams and teams of people and not the actual artist himself and he may have had some approval on those yeah yeah but you know overall this is like not super edgy shit and anyone who likes horror movies or anything macabre like this criticism that you can't be macabre or carnivalesque in art and music because it's satanic and freemasonic etc is just out of control and more than like i expect it to come from you know your your fundamentalist um places but to see that which it has yeah but to see it coming from young people is just really disheartening and we've been seeing a lot of that. Well, yeah, and I, th- I, I think that um, what you've got going on is them trying to be like super edgy and super ironic in this artwork that is being what that was displayed at this festival. And by artwork, it I mean wasn't just even like, though, man. It was just like weird sci-fi stuff. It's about this like weird, you know, fantasy theme park, and it's. I mean, it's just some like horror movie shit. Like, it's right? Not even- yeah, there was, there was, you know, has been, has been, has now been pointed out, and it's only been three days or four days since this happened. Which, by the way, it happened on Guy Fox Day, November fifth, oh, yeah. right? Oh, yeah, there you go. Um, you know, uh, so, it, which I haven't really seen anybody point that out. I don't know. <laughs> I've seen it, but, unfortunately. But- yeah. But I guess nobody remembers the gunpowder plot anymore. But um, the whole thing was just the Hieronymus, like a takeoff. There was a takeoff of like a Hieronymus Bosch painting. I mean, that shit was lot. out of control. Uh, like every, like that motif has been used for like, it's I think like Skeletor's castle from He-Man has right, like right. a mouth as a gate. Right, like right. that's a very yeah, I, I had Castle Castle Grey Skull, I remember this very well. Yeah. Yes, yes. Uh where were the w- w- I'm sure that the guy that was talking about the satanic toys back in the day, maybe he hit on <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, for real. I don't know. Which is all based on like Renaissance art, which you know, Hieronymus Bosch you know, mispronounced by a, by a lovely young lady on YouTube, on TikTok said uh, said Aeronymous. Um, you know, it's very dark kind of art, but you know, there were people that said that I watched a couple of concert goers said that they had like a weird vibe and a weird feel there. But you had a lot of people there, and. You know, that could come from just about anywhere. Negative energy is going to probably happen at some place like Especially this. in a giant crowd. I mean, there is, there is like real... Like it was probably something that was really doomed to fail and was really doomed to tragedy right from the start. This, yeah. was, this is something that was probably due to poor design, uh, really just incompetence, also not having enough uh, paramedics. They're already saying that there were not enough paramedics. That there were only two defibrillators for a crowd of like fifty thousand people. Yeah, 
Uh, it's probably going to change yeah. a lot of concerts and festivals yeah. for the you know foreseeable future, which is probably the only thing positive that's going to come out of it. Well, you know, and I was thinking, you know, when I was watching these girls talk about this today, like how they had this negative feeling. I mean, that's what people said about Altamont too. Yeah, you know, I mean, that's. And this is kind of like um, really, it's like it's way worse than Altamont too. Man. And Altamont, I mean Altamont, I think only one person died. Yeah, Hell's right? Angel shot the guy. Yeah. So you know these things are not unusual; they do happen. But people have really glommed on, like you said, to the artistic part of it, whether that's the posters for the event or for. Um, the actual design of the sets and the stages and the artwork that was actually there. Mm -hmm. People really glommed onto this and saying that this was some kind of satanic portal and this was a satanic ritual and this was a sacrifice, uh, you know, because it's the harvest time. Eight eight people died. There's eight flames on stage. I mean, it gets really specific. Right. Yeah. It gets really specific. And which of course uh, no one, most people engaging in this do not understand the dark roots of synchro mysticism, which is really what this is. And this kind of, uh, criticism of the Hollywood elites, quote unquote, um, and the music industry, uh, being devices that uh, process, alchemically process us for the elites, etc. You know, it has a has a lot of history, and you know, it basically goes back to to downward and to. Uh, I mean, it's not not a stone's throw away from uh, just being anti-Semitic, because of course, who are the evil Kabbalists who run Hollywood? Right, right. Well, that's um, that's the part that's not being said yeah but it's it's also couched for a lot of just normal run-of-the-mill people as this is like satanic and all this kind of stuff yeah it's like you but you got these like young young woke or liberal kids like parroting shit that would be you know from a pulpit of some uh traveling satanic panic speaker in the 80s or 90s i mean that's what's like exactly i really can't stand it you know, everything's very explainable. Not to say that there's never anything, uh, not to say that like Hollywood and the music industry isn't weird and that doesn't have dark aspects to it and doesn't have negative impacts on society. But viewing this as like this overarching master plan evil theme, you know, is just is out of control and takes a blame away from, uh, you know, very. Well- apparent sources yeah the first thing that i heard was that the i heard i saw like an anti-vax thing um like because apparently they don't leave anything alone apparently everything was you know of course they they screened uh you know the proof of tests which i think that fell apart pretty quickly because apparently they were just letting people through whether they had proof of of covid negative covid tests or vaccine or not but the first thing that I heard, and this was on Saturday, this was all this was on Twitter. People were talking about how that uh, they people were, since the people were vaccinated, they were all dying of heart attacks, and you know this was oh, when they okay. turned the five G on or something at the uh, at the at Astro World or whatever. 
I'd be um, worried about more of a staph infection with those kind of crowded conditions. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but yeah, so that was the first thing that I heard. Um, I, I think the point I want to make here is just that uh, people that are doing this and, sh- and, 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 and exploring these ideas and saying that's a satanic thing and all this, I think they understand that there is something really wrong with this. And what it really comes down to is the selfishness of the people in the crowd that were more concerned about, you know, getting sweat off of Travis Scott or getting a picture close to Travis Scott that they trampled over people to do that. Yeah, that is real darkness. And I think and and not letting people come through to try to help them and all these type of things, um, you know, I think other people understand that, that that this is real, that that there is something wrong here. And yeah. on the other side of that, that, you know, you have apparently this artist that really did not seem to give a single fuck about what was going on in the audience. Yeah. And his ego and his inflated source of self being, you know, married to... Uh, one of the Kardashian girls, you know, I think that there is like, you know, there is some like class thing here that people are really kind of hitting on to in the celebrity culture. Yeah. The celebrity culture and how they view themselves basically as their shit don't stink. So that's all like on the surface and very apparent without having to imagine some, you know, but I think it's, it, it really, what a lot of this stuff is, just like with, that, with Cuna on this other stuff, yeah, like it's, it's a failure it's, to articulate something that's it's real. It's an admission that there is something wrong, but we need to find what the wrong thing is. And we don't want to admit that there's just, there's just, it's just chaos. That's basically it. This was a chaotic situation. Yeah. Apparently, the way that the, the, the stage was, was, was shaped in and of itself uh, was conducive to the area where the crowd was, I mean, was conducive to something like this happening and really packing people in. And they also, the uh, Live Nation, the ticket, uh, the people that were selling the tickets, not putting any kind of cap on it. And of course, just the utter greed of this thing being $400 a ticket. Yeah. And, and I'll play devil's advocate, no pun intended there, but uh, as far as, you know, with $400 ticket prices, uh, canceling the show in the middle of the headliner under those circumstances might have been a lot worse. So you would have gone from, uh, you know, uh, what, eight people dying and, you know, these countless injuries to full on riot and who knows what would have happened. So that might have been something that show organizers and Travis Scott were taking into account. Yeah, it's a possibility. That but, is a possibility, but yeah, overall, it's uh, it's just really sad to see like everyone, and especially young people, turn on this so quickly with the synchromistic bullshit, and uh, it's really it's a spell, you know. I mean, I believe in synchronicity. I believe in being able to uh, divine things using synchronicity. But the focus uh, of it on being able to decipher some global sorceress elite um, 
I think is very negative and is not very fruitful at all. I think that's very well said. And I think on that note, we will um, go to our interview with Jack Brewer. Hope you guys enjoy it. Welcome back, everybody, to Conspiranormal, and uh, we are here with uh, Jack Brewer. Jack has a new book out, and uh, Jack, first of all, welcome back to Conspiranormal. Welcome back to the show. Thank you. I appreciate you having me. Yeah, always. I always enjoyed having you on uh, ever since we did the first interview about the um, the grace have been framed, which was probably one of, I, I think, one of our a lot of our listeners kind of like favorite interviews that was several several years ago but this uh this book is uh called wayward sons and it's about uh nicap i guess we'll start off just kind of talk about what nicap was and what got you interested in studying this Oddly enough, Adam, the the current UFO climate and the the subculture actually got me interested in it. I had heard a lot about uh, CIA infiltration of NICAP, which, by the way, was a, a mid 20th century UFO organization. It's the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena. So that, that's a mouthful that they just call NICAP. And it, it was a UFO organization that, that rose to being arguably the most popular ever. Uh, it, it was formally incorporated in uh, 1956 and uh, grew to some 14,000 members over the next 10 years or so. I got interested in it because, as, as you and some of your listeners w- would know, I have an interest in where the intelligence community overlaps with the UFO community. Right. I find, yeah, I find that interesting. And So the more, actually, that all of this newer stuff with Tom DeLonge and To The Stars Academy and uh, people from the Pentagon turning into UFO researchers and the more and more that, that this got stirred up in recent years, the more I was looking for uh, historical precedents for, for how this happened and congressional hearings and um, intelligence professionals that, that had had uh, really sensational things to say about UFOs in the past. And that very much took me to NICAP. And in a lot of ways, we have parallels with the current UFO climate and repeating of history to some extent yeah there's definitely this whole um attitude that a lot of this that is going on now and i guess it has happened since two the stars came out in 2017 which by the way you not really hear much from two the stars at all anymore if they're even still existent but um, that, a, that a lot of people say, well, this is such a new thing. This is brand new. But the thing is, like, we've seen this in the last nearly now 75 years of the modern UFO age 
we've just it's it's for a lot of people it's just kind of old hat it doesn't uh, it's just the same story again and again and again yeah it really is it's really something in itself too how they can keep bringing in a new customer base so to speak <laughs> a new audience that's not aware of that and kind of to me makes the actions of the people orchestrating it somewhat suspicious in itself that they throw this these big claims on us and all this big talk of stuff to come that just never really seems to materialize that they really should be aware is as you're saying a 75 year history of the subject and in that orchestration that goes back 70 plus years it almost makes me like wonder i, I do believe in you know some aspect of the phenomenon people's experiences but it makes me wonder what ufology itself is like really about the way you see this kind of shady interplay between ufology yeah. and and the intelligence and military apparatus it has me really questioning like what what has this really been about since then I think that's more than valid. I feel like that we could look at what happened with To the Stars and particularly with Christopher Mellon and Luis Elizondo and say that regardless of what else may be argued, we certainly have witnessed an effective public relations campaign. So I don't know how much professional research or scientific investigation has been published. I think it's it could be well argued that virtually none. Uh, but we certainly saw a, a public relations campaign that, that was a marketing strategy that that seems to have been successful what it was for might still remain in question but i could very much relate to uh people that are actually interested in some type of phenomena or reports of ufos or reports of high strangeness being confused what the purpose even is like you're suggesting yeah, and I think, you know, Sophia and I were talking about a little bit about this earlier today, and I think that, yeah, you've got, as it's, you talk about in this in this latest book, and as you've talked about in, previous, in your previous book, and on your blog about the, the intersection between the intelligence community and all that, and that's that's definitely something that is going on, but now I feel like since the 1950s and 60s, it's really a lot of these personalities that are in these different movements, especially like in the disclosure movement. It's not really about the phenomenon itself or even about like, you know, disinformation really it's guys like Stephen Greer and other people that, that, that really just have like these, like, you know, personalities that they're trying to promote. Yeah. Yeah. With, with video logs and blogs and stuff like that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It, it really does. So let's talk about NICAP. Uh, well, you said it starts in 1956, but what was the reason, what was the purpose it was created for? And in its beginning, 
it really from the start has a lot of intelligence people involved with it. It does, Adam. And that was really what motivated me the most to, to write as lengthily as I did about it. I started with some blog posts and it became a book because I found the start of the organization most interesting. The story around the UFO genre is that NICAP was infiltrated by the CIA towards the end and was ruined in order to keep it from revealing the shocking truth, as, as we might say. And my research uh, much more indicated that the CIA and State Department were very heavily involved from the beginning if not launched the organization itself. So there were a couple of different narratives about how it happened. And the popular one that, that goes around is that there was uh, Clara John, uh, a lady in the Washington, D.C. area. She was the original ghostwriter for George Adamski, a contactee that's pretty controversial himself. And she had a newsletter and she had a saucer club that would meet regularly. Some people got interested in her saucer club, like T. Townsend Brown and uh, uh, an author that, that became famous as well, Morris Jessup, who was a UFO investigator. This led to a group, a small group of people having some meetings about possibly formally incorporating a UFO investigation group, making it a nonprofit corporation, seeking donations, getting themselves paid salaries and things like that. And that group involved Townsend Brown and Morris Jessup, uh, Donald Kehoe, who went on to, to become the face of NICAP, and a few others. That happened in 1956, and the organization was formally incorporated in 1956. And then in 1957, Kehoe became director and went on to have a reign of about 13 years of rattling swords with the CIA and the Air Force. An alternative story that I found through uh, archives, and uh, college archives and letters, FOIA, documents, newspaper clippings, a, a number of sources that I make readily available to readers of the book, is that the CIA had a relationship, Director Hillencoder did, with an organization called the, um, it was an uh, economic organization. Let me look here and I'll get you that name. Um, Economic Co Cooperation Administration in mm -hmm. the late 1940s. It was a government agency that was set up, at least outwardly, 
to provide international aid to various uh, countries and organizations that, that were um, uh, eligible, you know, in need. And the Economic Cooperation Administration had under contract an organization called the... Um, it, it was headed by uh, Mary Von King, and it was called Council Services. Now, I told you that because what matters is the ECA was actually as revealed through FOIA documents, collecting intelligence at top secret levels for the CIA. So what becomes really interesting about the council services and Mary Von King's group being under contract with them is that during this same point in time now, the early 1950s, they had a relationship and a, a professional relationship with T. Townsend Brown, who was later a, a uh, NICAP founder. Then in 1956, when Townsend Brown actually incorporated NICAP, he used Mary Von King and this uh, extension of the CIA, Council Services, to uh, actually incorporate NICAP. And then they brought in some consultants that, that are uh, heavily implicated in the CIA who work as uh, NICAP organizers. So we have a very interesting start there that uh, really strikes me that that's so left out of the narrative about uh, what what we tend to hear about NICAP when we hear it discussed these days. Right, that there were these links to intelligence all the way from the beginning of the organization. Yeah, and it's very incorporation. Yeah, uh, um, one of the incorporators that was an officer with Council Services and Mary Von King's group uh, was a former State Department man. O'Keefe was his name, and he had even worked on a board that was charged with selecting State Department personnel for foreign service positions, which are spies, you, you know, <laughs> and, um, right. uh, you know, people that work at embassies and foreign diplomats. And in the contract that they drew up with NICAP, Mr. O'Keefe was even designated to choose uh, regional managers and consultants for work in NICAP. And like by the time I got to that, I was like almost finding it amusing how, how clear it was and how mm -hmm. obvious that it was um, some type of extension of the intelligence services. And that could suggest that rather than wanting to suppress ideas about flying saucers, there could be some intention to promote some of this mythos or at least control the narrative. That would certainly seem a possibility, yes, especially because somewhat as we're seeing today, except it was even on a, a wider scale, 
NICAP brought a number of well-respected intelligence professionals into its ranks as advisory members, um, advisory board members, and they got statements from them and distributed these to magazines and newspapers and did a very effective a public relations campaign where CIA officers, Air Force officers, um, respected scientists were uh, making extremely sensational statements about UFOs representing interplanetary spacecraft. And it, it was uh, really a, a thing, a big deal. And as I said, attracted like a 14,000 members, and uh, the eventual director, Donald Kehoe, his, his, main, his main stick was that the CIA and the Air Force were conducting a cover-up and that he wanted congressional support and financial support to reveal the truth about saucers. So, yes, I think that in one one sense, we we could um, certainly strongly suspect that the CIA and the State Department and the powers that be were not entirely opposed to Major Kehoe's activities for it to gone on as long as it did. I, I think that's a, a reasonable suspicion. Yes. I also suspect that it really didn't have as much to do with UFOs as the UFO community might sometimes prefer <laughs> to think. And that if we look at that time in history, the mid-1950s, the CIA was uh, really out of control and uh, authoritative uh, doing a, a lot of nefarious activity and used a lot of nonprofit core nonprofit organizations to coordinate funding to it, its black projects uh, like MK Ultra. Some of the people on the fringe of this story, and I, I go into it in detail, are heavily implicated in MK Ultra, and I don't know that that really signifies a connection to mind control as much as it just kind of seems like the CIA wanted to cover all of its bases and may have had some ideas uh, about uh, raising funds and laundering funds through a UFO organization if it conducted a large-scale large PR campaign to get it a lot of members and, and could put a lot of money through it was one of my suspicions. However, NICAP was one, one of its staples was that it was always financially in, in the doghouse. It, it, it was always needing more money. So I, I think that they started with a plan and I, I think that it may have gone to plan f or g or h <laughs> by the time yeah by the time we're to like 1965 1968 I, I think that a lot of different things were going on and i think that may be more indicative of just a 
Wild West CIA that was fast and loose with a lot of stuff. Yeah, I mean, this is... 1954, a couple of years before that, is the coup in Guatemala. So, yeah, there's there's a lot going on. And you mentioned some things that are involved with that as well. And it, there's even connections to uh, one of these entities with E. Howard Hunt and that type of stuff as well. Yeah, strong connections. Like um, some of the uh, uh, NICAP board members um, – Joseph Bryan three worked with Hunt in the Office of Policy Coordination, which was a State Department and CIA front, and it was credited with uh, pulling off many of its former personnel, including its director Frank Wisner, were credited with uh, pulling off the the coup successfully in Guatemala, and there's a some interesting trivia there too about where one of uh the tactics that were considered for use to uh change the uh narrative in guatemala at the time was a uh sensational ufo story to maybe break a sensational story in the press to get them to stop talking about that the cia had conducted a coup in their- uh-huh right <laughs> Right. Which is just amazing to me. Like, you know, like, like that's the kind of thing I'm really interested in. It's trying to track that kind of stuff down. Before we kind of move on to some of that, I want to talk about uh, Nicholas de Rochefort and the connections to the China lobby. I thought this was interesting because you spent there's like a whole chapter about th- about this guy. Oh, yeah, ab- absolutely. I strongly suspect he was one of the consultants brought in by Mary Bond King and O'Keefe and council services. He was an early NICAP organizer. And by that, I mean, from about about October 1956, when the organization was formally incorporated to January 1957. It was a short window that T. Townsend Brown and council services and some of its consultants seem to have carte blanche. And Nicholas de Roquefort is well known in among historians with the China lobby and the 1950s political movement. They just don't seem to think of his Uh, UFO-related activity as much more than a minor footnote. That's probably correct. It just so happens that I came at the man through the UFO angle. And before he got hooked up with NICAP, he was well-respected and successful in the D.C. lobbying area with with the conservative, uh, politically conservative side of the the China lobby and trying to keep China from uh, entry into the United Nations. And historians say that uh, the work that was done by groups such as his and that lobby influenced uh, American policy towards Asia and Southeast Asia for as much as a couple generations and probably even 
uh, the way Vietnam was handled. But he he founded with the support of uh, some congressmen and uh, high ranking political contacts. He founded a group called the Committee of Five Million, and it was considered to be uh, the most high profile and successful part of this wealthy, significant China lobby of the 1950s and 1960s. And we can look to that council services, their contracts with the, uh, the ECA that I mentioned that was an arm of the CIA, it involved uh, supposed, at least ostensibly, relief work done in China. So there's a lot, no doubt, going on uh, between the lines and under the table there. But then for whatever reason, de Roquefort uh, got assigned, it would appear, to work on NICAP. And so we can take that uh, for what it may be worth, that if his specialty was founding an organization in the lobbying community and making it work, then we can kind of surmise some things about him being put on NICAP and what we might call the UFO lobby at the time, even as short-lived as it was. It seems to me to have some some strong implications there. Right, and this guy was really considered like a master of psychological warfare i mean he he talked himself out of a pow camp right isn't that Mm -hmm. the story Mm -hmm. that's correct that that is absolutely correct he was considered an expert in psychological warfare uh one of his first acts was that in the uh french army he was captured uh and was a german pow and faked a sickness and was released from the pow camp And then uh, when the Allies came back later, uh, he was among them coming back fighting again. So uh, a number of FBI investigations repeatedly found him to be uh, completely anti-communist and the kind of uh, man that Uncle Sam would have been looking (laughs) for. And that's something I found interesting about this as well. While, while the UFO people tend to look at the spooks and the guys that seem to have hidden agendas as uh, villains and black hats, it's really interesting to see that Roquefort was known all the way to the Joint Chiefs of Staff and right. that Uh, Some of the FBI investigative material even reflects that uh, Brass and the Joint Chiefs were tapped by the FBI to to, uh, know what was going on with Roquefort. And the fact the FBI was investigating him during this 1956-1957 window Uh, weighed very heavily in my estimation that something significant was going on. One of what I felt were the most significant documents that I discovered was a November 1956, I believe it is, document 
from a uh, FBI uh, special agent at the Washington field office to director Hoover. And it's heavily redacted and was for his eyes only that it was he, the, the special agent had talked to an informant about Roquefort and he was given information under the stipulation that it was to be shared only with Hoover and not to be uh, disseminated outside of Hoover's office. And that, that document is heavily redacted and it is um, like days after NICAP was incorporated. I requested the FBI to uh, do what's called a mandatory declassification review on the document. And sometimes they'll release more of the information or release it in full. And in this specific circumstance, they didn't further declassify it at all and told me that everything that's blacked out on it is uh, still exempt from the FOIA process. But I thought that was really interesting that at that point on the timeline, the FBI was uh, clearly enrolled to conduct extensive investigations on Roquefort that pretty much uh, came to a boil with that document to Director Hoover. And I think it's something we see time and time again where these uh, people who have other interests um, who are high profile are usually sought out by more fringe things like ufology uh, to give it some validation, but their uh, interest in ufology is just uh, viewed as this separate thing to their other endeavors and ideology. And uh, it's, I don't think that's always the case. I think more often than not, it seems like uh, it's informed by those. That could be. You you could very well be right about that. Yeah. Um. So, what about some of these other personalities involved with the founding? Um. What about like T. Townsend Brown? He's pretty interesting because you see a lot of this relationship between uh, inventors and people interested in the types of aviation that that are supposed to be witnessed in UFOs. Uh, so he was a Navy man, right? And he was real interested in anti gravity technology. Yes. And if there's somebody that, that you know, kind of um, brought the undercover cops to the party, it was T. Townsend Brown, <laughs> um, so to speak, in that uh, he was interested in, in uh, anti-gravity technology and did some experiments with saucer-like things, and it's widely accepted that that would have really been his initial interest in Clara John's saucer group and forming NICAP, was that he may have not been as interested in a UFO mystery as much as somehow harnessing this technology and profiting from it, or at least... Uh, proving some of his long-standing theories that were largely argued and rejected were correct. But where it really, to me, gets interesting with Brown was that he brought in council services and Mary Von King that you'll recall 
was contracted with the ECA and by extension the CIA. He brought them in in the early 1950s, uh, it, certainly no later than 1951, to work on this Project Winter Haven, he called it, that was his effort to harness anti-gravity. Uh, and so it, it was then that he, as he described it later, was that he had them on retainer to help him get the project funded with the Department of Defense. And that doesn't seem to ever have come to fruition, but he stuck with them. And as I mentioned earlier, used council services and Mary Von King to help incorporate NICAP then in 1956. And then the council services officers and uh, consultants came in with that. So it, it's, I, I really feel like to an intelligence analyst here, it's a really clear picture uh, of how this organization uh, was uh, manipulated, if not under the guidance of the intelligence community from the start. Then what, what may have happened after that um, can, can be a lot more up to interpretation and judgment and argument. But yes, T. Townsend Brown was a colorful guy. Uh, he, he had a tendency to leave some details out of things when he was explaining them to people. And it seems like um, he may have been trying to avoid uh, pointing some fingers where it might have been uh, um, inadvisable to, to him to do so. But um, in, in later renditions of that story, he tended to want to leave uh, names like Von King and council services and stuff out of the telling of the story, which personally I thought was pretty indicative of what was probably going on as well. Jack, let's talk a little bit about uh, the psychological warfare aspect of this. And uh, you mentioned a, a group called OPC and kind of their um, connection with kind of psychological warfare. And then you use an ex as a good example of this uh, something called the Spitzbergen story, and how that's kind of had its like permutations down the years. Yeah, yeah. the The OPC was in 1948. Uh, there, an office was founded called the Office of Policy Coordination, and it was a front for the CIA and the State Department. And was kind of interesting in that it, while it was funded out of the CIA, its director called the shots, Frank Wisner. And the policy during peacetime was recommended from the State Department. And then Wisner went about working on how to accomplish those things and largely had carte blanche and uh, his, his way of how he wanted to do things. He had a lot of experts in psychological warfare, and one of them was Joseph Bryan III, who ended up a 
a long-term member of the board of governors of NICAP later. But in, from about approximately 1948 to 1951 or so, um, Brian is, is probably worked there by all accounts he did. And that's when Brian put together a staff largely of uh, guys he went to Princeton with and E. Howard Hunt and a couple other people that were experts in psychological warfare. And they distributed uh, books. They wrote books, as, sometimes as ghostwriters, sometimes in their own names as military experts. They distributed newspaper articles all over the world and were a really clever bunch of guys. And uh, what I was getting at earlier that's kind of fascinating about the UFO genre sees, sees this as like a villainous type of, of thing where they were really celebrated in the intelligence community and the military community and were I, I I interpret even believed themselves to be patriotic and fighting communism and upholding democracy. And some of them were extremely wealthy, which I think is interesting as well, that uh, I, I think they were searching for purpose. I think they wanted to be involved in things that they thought would be interesting. And uh, as I say, some of them were quite clever, too. There was a uh, uh, one of them who in college um, pulled this stunt, uh, a gag he did, where he uh, had, um, there was a snowfall blizzard in New Jersey, and he uh, had this waste paper basket that was the shape of a rhino foot. And he took this uh, rhino foot and made prints all over the campus in the snow. And then he took them down to the frozen lake where they ended and he busted a big hole in the ice. <laughs> yeah, so that it looked like it just fell in the ice. And then he wrote an anonymous letter a couple days later admitting it was a hoax because it was the lake that they used for drinking water at the school. And he, uh, he, he I guess, felt kind of remorseful that a lot of people had just stopped drinking water then. Because they thought there was a dead rhino in it? <laughs> a dead something, some big animal, yeah. <laughs> and Ugh. so... It, it was a very clever group, and this did not escape the CIA's attention. And so not only were um, wealthy people uh, in from what would have been considered good, you know, reputable families, good for um, ha having less concern that they might be compromised or bought for money, um, they, they were also... Uh, considered valuable uh, agents and operatives and assets for, for a number of other reasons. And uh, yeah, some of them, um, like uh, Pinky Thompson was one, Lewis Pinky Thompson, that uh, worked for Brian in the OPC and 
he went on to be very heavily implicated in MK Ultra and worked with uh, the Geschichter Fund, which was one of the um, most widely recognized uh, foundations that acted as a uh, funding conduit for the CIA for MK Ultra and Black projects. So it, it's to me, it, it's almost a it is a given that the the CIA and the State Department had interests in NICAP. Where we might get into debate is how far they went with it and what the purposes were. But there's certainly more to it than this was just a group of good old boys that wanted to get to the bottom of the UFO mystery. Sure. Yeah. And that kind of, uh, and also the Spitzbergen story that we. Yes. Thank you for bringing it back up. That, that was a story that uh, in the, I think it originated about 1952. And uh, one of those things that depends on who you ask, it was either a hoax or of uh, great importance that there was supposedly a uh, flying saucer that crashed on, on the Scandinavian island of Spitsbergen. And this, this story went on for literally decades. Uh, I, I remember as late as the 80s and 90s, I was still finding uh, uh, stuff on old um, listservs and things like that where ufologists were arguing about it and trying to track it down. So in 1968, a State Department employee in Moscow sent a cable to the United States State Department informing it that a Soviet scientist... Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M. Dot com and check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply had written an article on the Spitz version case. And the article was very skeptical and was concerned about if Soviets came to believe in all of these UFO stories that it, it could be 
a bad thing for for the people and the public at large. And the, it had a paragraph in the article about the Spitz version case. And Nick Redfern found uh, the document that's now uh, archived on the NSA site. And around this paragraph, it, it's uh, it's blocked off and someone presumably at the State Department or NSA wrote the word plant, P-L-A-N-T. <laughs> yeah, with an arrow towards that that paragraph. So there's any number of ways we could take that. And all of them are quite interesting about the intelligence community's involvement with the ufo genre which you reproduce that in the book actually you have that where it's it where it says plant right next to it yeah yeah it's like that's pretty damning evidence that <laughs> <laughs> one would think yeah yeah, yeah. right so i want to talk about kehoe and his role in this um and the kind of like his 13 year reign that he had over NICAP and how he was really, you mentioned this just briefly, but how he was really trying to get the, the information um, from the CIA and the FBI and his thoughts on why they were not giving him the information. And yeah, in, in Kehoe's defense, he didn't have 75 years to look back at like um, officers and intelligence professionals today do, that they ignore largely. But Kehoe uh, seemed to be a true believer. He would say that he was committed to science and professional investigation but it often seemed to be more lip service that like saying that gave him uh, more free reign to then mix in his beliefs and say that they were where the evidence led him. So he, in my opinion, he suffered from a lot of confirmation bias, but he seemed to sincerely believe that UFOs represented interplanetary vehicles he seemed to think there was an urgency that it was new that it was just starting uh he seemed to think that there were literally thousands of solid reports which like in my opinion make is like like that seems to say to me then you need to upgrade your uh, qualifications of what makes a good report because you're essentially <laughs> been saying that there's just aliens everywhere, you know? <laughs> and, and yeah, and these were like thousands of reports within a few years. Not, right, not right. Even, so they're just you know, crawling around. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, there's an air traffic problem up there. <laughs> yeah. And yes. And he, he, again, in his defense, the CIA and the Air Force were talking in doublespeak. They, they did have reasons that, that they were not answering his questions directly. Uh, there, are, there are and were documents and circumstances classified that 
arguably didn't have anything to do with, uh, quote, UFO, unquote, kinds of stuff that would still be reasonable to classify. And we can talk about some of those if you want. But, yeah, he... He came to, and it really started a long-term trend in, in ufology, to try to argue the existence of the UFOs by showing that he was being blocked from getting the information. And like right. claiming that the fact they won't answer my questions means my theories are right. And that that's not really a rational argument it's not a good way to to come at it and he got some criticism as well from uh congressmen and representatives and various authority figures that he wasn't presenting evidence he was arguing he'd present it if somebody'd give it to him and that that that's certainly a trend that continued and Again, in his defense, the intelligence agencies weren't shooting straight with him. We could also argue, though, that uh, that kind of gets to be um, kind of common knowledge. Like, like, you can argue that it's wrong that, that intelligence agencies gaslight the public or that they talk out of both sides of their mouth, or that maybe they won't give you these files because they're hiding other things, and you think it's one thing, but it's not. And maybe they don't want to talk a lot about UFOs because they also use it as a defensive and offensive topic as well. And we could argue all day and night about the ethics of that, and the fact is going to remain, we should just understand that's the case, you know. And we're, we're to a point now where we really should, should maybe even argue why are we even asking the CIA or the intelligence community anything. Right. And the latest thing, too, now is that, well, they hold all the cards and they've got all the information. So now we, we have to kiss their ass. That's the... <laughs> Yeah, that's, that's yeah. the latest kind of right. It's, it's it's almost like weirdly switched. Well, you mentioned there uh, some of the cases that he um, was bothering them about. What were some of those that he was uh, trying to get them to admit to? Yeah, it it almost gets comical at times. I'm sure it wasn't to to the poor major, but like there was a case where a uh, uh television reporter in cleveland had a uh some ufo pictures and the cia asked him if they could could take a look at them and he told them they could and they they looked at them for a while then brought them back and when they brought them back he asked if it would be okay if he does a documentary if he puts their analysis in the documentary and uh this cia officer that was apparently from it, its outreach division contact division which is what's used to pick up and drop off things and wouldn't even know what went on in a lab with it was told them that they'd rather uh 
the CIA not be involved in the documentary. Uh, but as the record goes, he said, you're free to do what you want and left it at that. Well, when Kehoe got word of that, he, he got it in, in his sights because the FBI and the CIA kept telling him that they weren't actively investigating UFOs. So understandably, he wanted an explanation for this. And I say it almost gets comical at times because I, I found a letter he wrote the CIA where he asked about this officer's name from the contact division in Cleveland and asked the CIA, did you have this man stationed in Cleveland during this point in time? And yeah, I read his letter and was just kind of laughing at it in hindsight, you know, that like, like you're going to get a file opened on you for asking questions about CIA officers, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and there were files, right. That you did got through FOIA and on Kehoe. Right. That, yeah. That's correct. And so those are the kinds of things that and like um, you guys and your listeners probably know that um, these days the uh, CIA has now released some files on its uh, U-2 spy plane project. And that was a big thing in the 50s and 60s and was highly classified and the pilots were classified and uh, had been given false identities as retired or not false identities, but cover stories that they weren't even in the Air Force anymore. And certainly like Director Hillencoder and some uh, high-ranking intelligence officers that were involved with NICAP would have known this and would have been bound by security oaths not to talk to Kehoe and others with, with less knowledge about these kinds of things. Mm -hmm. But th this is the type of thing that um, if you ask the CIA and the Air Force what they're doing and what was this sighting and how did you get this information, it's just going to be no. We're, we're just not going there, man, because you right. start pulling that thread and we will just have more lies to tell you about other stuff. So just no, we're not talking about it. And, and that's the kind of thing that uh, – you really can't, and ufologists have, have, are infamous for trying to do this. They'll swat the bee's nest, and then when they get chased by bees, they'll say that proves their theory. <laughs> and it doesn't. It just means that you're, like, messing with intelligence agencies and should just stop, you know? Yeah. And, and I'm not saying that they should be above accountability or anything like that. But I am saying it should be above board. Like, I, I think that as a community, we need to put behind the days of trying to talk to Colonel Alexander uh, on, on the sly at a UFO conference or, <laughs> or this, this one or that one or, you know, these intelligence officers like Alexander that used to go on the UFO forums and do a Ask Me Anything event. That's just not the way to do it. Like, file your FOIA request, ask agency spokespeople for comment, 
And if you don't get it that way, you don't need it. There's laws and there should be laws about don't be asking people with security clearances what they do. You right. know? And, and we just shouldn't even be going there. And recognize that they deal in a large part in deception. So why should you necessarily trust anything? Yes, it's absolutely the nature of the beast. Those uh those offensive and defensive strategies that you mentioned. I mean, in case anyone really is you know skeptical about the involvement of the military and intelligence agencies and world and why they would be interested in this, you quote uh, Fawcett and Greenwood. I'm not sure what book that's from, uh, but they say that uh, I guess they're talking more about. Uh, they had the narrative that NICAP was later suppressed, kind of like what you're saying was a popular conception, uh, but they list. That uh, is it possible that the CIA want to influence NICAP activities for several reasons. Number one, to gather intelligence through NICAP's investigators network. Number two, to identify and plug leaks from government sources uh, because NICAP was renowned for receiving military oriented reports. And three, to monitor other hostile intelligence agencies. Uh, NICAP received several overtures from the Soviet KGB. So that's just some of the utility of being involved in this world. Yes, and thank you for bringing it up. The more we get into the subtleties and the nuance, the more apparent it becomes that, right, the CIA and the State Department could have launched this organization with a number of ideas in mind of how it would be used over time. And it would have been one of hundreds of organizations it did this with as have been documented about Cold War funding conduits to special projects and that kind of thing. And what you're talking about there is certainly a part of it that there's just no way. I mean, it's like beyond um, feasible that Air Force officers were leaking intelligence to Donald Kehoe (laughs) And that the FBI and the Air Force and, by extension, the CIA wouldn't be interested in getting a handle on that. And and in that way, I mean, like every game you can think of is is now on the board, even that the officers leaking the information are leaking bad information given to them by the CIA to tell Kehoe so that he'll publish it. Like every, like, like, I mean, and at that point in time, I don't think maybe Kehoe and his associates weren't as aware as we are today of the extent intelligence agencies will go to, to deceive a a global adversary or a population that maybe wasn't as aware then. I did think, though, that it was kind of dumbfounding that so many officers would get involved and be on this uh, wagon train of release the files, open the classified files, and not think that, like, at best, that's going to call their judgment into question. Uh, I, I guess some of them were probably assets... And maybe some of them just got caught up in it and and truly thought 
that this is an urgent uh, changing of the history of mankind. I, I mean, certainly a, a percentage of them that could have been the case. I think some of them, too, might have just had grudges with their former employers and wanted to, to argue with them, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it wouldn't be the last time, you know, anybody just uh, got on board with somebody's um, campaign because they, you know, friend of an enemy kind of thing. Yeah, that's true. Uh, and also, too, like to point out that Kehoe also earlier uh, in the 20s, apparently he was like a, in the 30s, he was a pulp writer. Yeah, there's a couple ways to look at that. Like one is that guys like Ropefort and some of the other uh, consultants brought on by council services as original NICAP organizers, they were really shady and seemed to have no history in UFOs. Then we have Kehoe that uh, does have a history in writing uh, fiction, uh, paranormal fiction, fringe fiction, as well as a history of uh, writing what was supposed to be nonfiction, but the FBI had identified as irresponsible and um, damaging. And uh, like in one case in an FOIA document of a, a FBI um, memo, they noted that Kehoe had written uh, long before NICAP that uh, the merchant Marines had been taken over by, I think, uh, Soviets or Nazis, or I think Nazis it was, <laughs> and that, uh, you know, we were in danger of um, uh, being taken over from within. And the FBI was supposedly had knowledge of this. I think he put in his article as well. And the FBI resented it as completely untrue. It said in their memo and, you know, incorrect and that kind of thing. And uh, kind of another interesting aspect of that was that I thought kind of plays right into the part about all of these officers seemingly just recreationally moonlighting as ufologists and screaming at the Air Force and CIA was that uh, this FBI, these inner memos, there was a clerk in the New Orleans field office that wanted to join NICAP and asked up the chain of command and it did go all the way to Hoover's office. And while Director Hoover outwardly kept a stance of impartiality, he put the, the word back down the chain of command that he didn't want anything to do with the Bureau being involved with NICAP in, in any way. And I thought that that was somewhat telling, possibly, of that it's really unlikely that these CIA officers and intelligence professionals would be working with NICAP, um, you know, quote, just for fun, unquote, you know. 
it, it almost insulting to intelligence in a certain way. Yeah, I could definitely see that. What um, so what was the kind of the the main operations of NICAP, and how did that trajectory kind of change throughout its its lifespan? What they were really good at was boots on the ground investigation. And in a lot of ways, it, it was quite functional as compared to future and current UFO organizations. They were a committee out of Washington, D.C., and then had numerous subcommittees that worked on special projects and membership drives and publishing material and things like that. Then they had chapters in different cities um, all around the country and eventually the world that recruited investigators and built relationships with local police departments, local military bases, and were making themselves available to conduct investigations and were willing to be available to work on sticky stuff that maybe the police department didn't want, maybe the airport didn't want, and then would even coordinate release of the information as responsible to uh, newspapers and, and journalists and, and tried to form relationships there as well. So it was a really interesting network that that in itself would have attracted the attention of the intelligence community for uh, what are their intentions and how are they doing this and why are they doing it if it weren't uh, orchestrated by the intelligence community, which, you know, is at question. But there were certainly a lot of people involved in NICAP who were by no means CIA assets mm -hmm. and were very much committed to investigating UFOs and writing about them responsibly and did, did some good work or seemingly good work in coordinating this network of investigators. And then it kind of started going off the rails as Kehoe got more and more obsessed with the cover-up. <laughs> Towards the late 1960s, they had so many officers and congressmen involved in influential places that they actually achieved congressional hearings on UFOs. And in a way you know, depending on how you want to look at it, like an ironic Greek tragedy of sorts, <laughs> they kind of shot themselves in the foot with making it so political. And that's because what the congressional hearings led to was a scientific study on UFOs conducted at the University of Colorado. Right. And yes, and when that report came out, it put the kibosh, their findings at the University of Colorado were very unflattering to NICAP and Kehoe. And then NICAP got involved in challenging uh, that report. And that pretty much um, was the beginning of the end in 1969. 
So to answer your question more succinctly, they were really good at boots on the ground investigation and compiling reports and networking and creating relationships. Perhaps they got frustrated with, as we now know, all that does is just get you piles and piles and piles of stuff people said. And so maybe Kehoe probably sincerely believed that the answers could be pried from the intelligence agencies with enough help from intelligence oversight committees in Congress. But that didn't prove the case then, and it's uh, really doubtful as to whether it's going to today. So the what you mentioned there, the Condon report, which, I mean, that's a big um, part of, I guess, UFO history, I guess, is that um, because that's kind of the turning point where the, the Air Force basically washed its hands of, of, you know, Project Blue Book was closed and they said that was the final report on UFOs and um and that was kind of a big turning, like you said, a big turning point for, for NICAP. And I guess Kehoe was gone pretty much right after that. Within a year, yes, he was. Uh, he and Gordon Lohr, his assistant director, were relieved of their services. Uh, the the Conan report came out in, I believe, early 1969. And December of 1969, Kehoe and... Mr. Lohr were uh, relieved of their positions and more people implicated in the CIA were brought in and ran a shell of an organization the next 10 years or so that by the time it formally shut down uh, was uh, just basically someone answering the phone out of their home by the end of the 1970s. Yeah. Yeah, and, it, and I guess it finally went defunct by 1980. Yeah, I think 1982 was the formality, but uh, in the NICAPPER's mind, pretty much 1970 was when it went. But uh, yeah, in 1982, it was um, taken into uh, the Center for UFO Studies uh, run by uh, Heineck was who who got the files and yeah well i think that um brings us to i think the really the main question here is how the experience of nicap and what happened earlier reflects on what's going on right now in the ufo universe (laughs) yeah i'd like to hear you guys thoughts on that too mine as you know, we're, we are, we're kind of circling back to the beginning. It's, it's largely how I got involved in being interested in NICAP. You know, I, I investigated the overlapping of the UFO subculture with the intelligence community. And so I really needed at some point to take a serious look at this and the, the more I looked at it, the more clear it became that this, this is not a, you know, two-hour project here. This, this <laughs> is really, really in-depth. And I, I was in communications with some people that, that could 
help me out with it and give me some direction and share some materials with me. And one of the big reasons that, that I, I kept coming back to it is current day events. I kept feeling like, wow, this has all happened before the, the Congress people that get on board because it might be advantageous. They think their constituency wants to see them wave this flag or their constituency wants to see them stomp on it there you know like that's just what a politician does like right. we were saying with uh we can argue the ethics of an intelligence community but it's just what senator rubio does is, <laughs> is ask his consultants which way should i go with this and you know what what's what's the the trend looking like here and uh it it it's you know just um kind of maddening that that if you ask most people about ufos that are into ufos virtually anything the government says or congress does or that comes out of the white house or any branch of government they'd say is a sham and a waste of time and they don't even pay attention to it and one of them says something about ufos and and they treat it like you can just cite it as gospel you know, right. and I don't know why they think that would be UFOs would be any different than, you know, a, a seatbelt law or, you know, getting uh, a part built or anything else that it's just a matter of what looks most advantageous to the politician's career. Yeah. But I, there's certainly a lot of, uh, parallels between the 1960s ufo community and today and if you guys would like to talk about that i i'd like to hear some about it as well well this is kind of i guess kind of how i see it i mean i in 2017 when they had the big new york times article and you had people that normally probably wouldn't even talk or be interested in UFOs all of a sudden talking about it. A lot of people really, I guess, in the UFO sphere were really excited that something could 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 come about. And at the time, I was kind of like, well, this is really not anything that's different. And here we are in 2021 and nearly four years later and there's really been no real progress on anything there's been no like um disclosure there's been only this kind of i guess admission that it's out there and we don't really know what it is um, which is the same thing yeah that was admitted before right there's nothing yeah there's nothing new under the sun here maybe it just sounds a little a little better or something. Um, I, I I could definitely see what you're saying because, you know, like we, we talked about before at the beginning of the interview, what happened to TTSA? Where did they go? You know, it just kind of slowly disappeared. And that was another thing that happened a couple of months before that in October 2017. You know, the big announcement, Tom DeLong, and they're going to, crack the code they're gonna you're gonna they're gonna crack the ice and like bring the it's it's gone basically 
Like I think you make the point that like it lasted a lot less time than the NICAP did. <laughs> and I I don't see that there's really any real reason for me especially to get excited about it because it just seems like it's just the same old thing again and again and again. And I see the same people on Twitter again and again and again saying, Oh, this is it this time. This is it. And I've always likened the disclosure crowd to the, to the kind of evangelical prophecy community because they're very similar because they'll come up with something and say, okay, this is it. It's going to happen this time. And then it never does. Or it just, the day comes and it just fizzles out. And it seems to me like, well, they don't really set a date with these things with disclosure, but it always just kind of fizzles out. It doesn't go anywhere. And, and you make the point that, uh, you have ridiculous things like the Roswell slides. You know, that was absolutely absurd. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But they, it's, it's really, I think just Jack, just, it's just about a belief. It's just more like a belief system. And it's, it, it really acts more like that than it acts like it's any kind of like real kind of like scientific inquiry. Mm-hmm. You know, the people that there's people that want it to be that way. Which is why I, I lean on the side of this being some kind of spiritual thing or it being something that is uh, beyond our real understanding that I don't think there's ever going to be any physical evidence that you can really uh, point to. And that's another thing, too. Um, that's not that, mutually exclusive. Like yeah. The skepticism of a right. lot of the history of ufology doesn't necessarily mean that you don't think that there is ultimately some kind of phenomenon. Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing too is like there's always these meta materials and these new things like oh we've got them, we've got them. But we never see them. Like where are they? Because they disappear. Yeah, I guess. Into the ether. <laughs> <laughs> um me, I think uh I mean just like anything else, UFOs are not in a vacuum and Without understanding the human elements of history, ideology, uh, this does have to deal with aerospace and military technology. So everything that goes along with that, um, it's, you know, it's just hard to understand it without the human element. Uh, But rather than just being disillusioned, uh, when you do incorporate the human element, it opens up like a whole nother dimension. And that's something that you really show in your research. And it's, it's fascinating to see you know, all the elements of the games people play in these type of worlds and even hoaxes and things like that. Um, you know, the human element is really, I think the most fascinating thing to me. Um, even if a lot of this doesn't really pan out to, uh, a material reality, but I've become really fascinated with the idea of ufology being this kind of, uh, club and hobby of people interested in aerospace and technology and it uh, helping them brainstorm and giving them creative energy to uh, invent actual uh, real things. And I think that's something that we like seen with the more recent Bigelow stuff. Um, I think studying how these crafts, when they if they are captured on legitimate 
video or photographs, how they operate and how that can give people ideas for actually designing aerospace innovations. Uh, that's really fascinating. I think that has a lot to do with this stuff since way back then. So that's what I'm mostly fascinated by right now. Yeah, I, I hear you. And thank you. I've, I've become more interested in the human aspects of it as well obviously like they they seem to be um something more that that one might can get their teeth in so to speak and uh, along those lines adam i actually wanted to ask you something about um your research i saw your presentation that you did at your you guys last conference and um congratulations on it great conference thank you thank you i was glad i i I was able to get you to watch it that's that was that was good that i did that thank you and yeah it actually i kind of found part of it kind of paralleled the way I got interested in the intelligence community was kind of because I kind of got tired of, you know, people with labs and funding can't get UFOs under a glass. What's somebody that's, you know, just, you know, got his laptop (laughs) supposed to do, you know, and you mentioned Adam in your presentation, something to the effect, uh, and by the way, for those that haven't seen it, he presented on various um, representations of the supernatural and possessions in the media, like movies and films, and they'll tell you they're based on a true story. And then Adam was giving some of the uh, actual stories that you know, aren't so truly represented in the movies. And it it was good stuff, good, interesting stuff. Thank you, Jack. You're welcome. And you mentioned that uh, um, to some people, at least this is what I interpreted, to some people they got kind of more interested in trying to identify evil because that would maybe be proof of the divine, something Mm. like that. And... That kind of reminded me or made me think of how I, I just kind of started looking for the people doing the pointing instead of what they're pointing at with UFOs. And if if you could expand just a little on that thought, I, I'd like to hear a little more about that. Well, I, that's something that I've run into a lot um, is the whole idea that, and I mean, uh, it's something that I kind of more used to believe as well, because you see that, I guess, in kind of more, I guess, like the evangelical fringe now. A lot of it is kind of obsessed with kind of like the demonic and also with UFOs and UF aliens and abduction being the demonic and all this kind of thing. And I, I feel like that there has been... Um, a fo- uh, an over focus on that instead of kind of like the positive aspects of it, and that it was something that um, Ed Warren, in one of the um, interviews that I saw with him that he gave, he pretty much said the same thing. You know that 
these are kind of like trials that are sent by God, um, these demonic attacks or whatever. And the whole idea that if you can prove the existence of some kind of discarnate entity that is able to um, inhabit the body of a person and that that is pure evil, well, then obviously the good must also exist. So this is something that I've seen just kind of again and again and again. It's a common theme in movies, a lot of supernatural movies. It's a common theme with uh, especially people like the Warrens. Um, and like I said, the Evangelical Fringe will also talk about this as well. Um, it, it's it's I think it's just a roundabout way of trying to prove their beliefs mm-hmm. is really what is really what it is. Um, I guess similar to the way the UFO community does about some other things um, that, you know, I, I guess really what you talk about, well, since they deny it, then it obviously must be real. You know, um, the intelligence agencies deny this. So therefore, A plus B equals C, you know, um I you know whether there's any truth to that argument. I don't know what I'm talking. I don't know whether what I'm talking about whether it's like actually true, but I think it's something that is used as a, a means, as almost like a teaching tool. And but I think what it can tend to do is actually it will get people more obsessed with the negative stuff than it will with actually trying to find some kind of spiritual spiritually edifying thing and i think we're seeing that right now being manifested in something like QAnon, which is overly obsessed with um pedophiles and satanic cults and these type of things and yeah that thank you that that is really interesting the subjectivity um, the, a couple of points there. Like one thing, you're right about the the teaching that, like, if a researcher comes around to, okay, here's my platform, and this is what I've built my popularity on, and I have this following, they almost can't change streams. Then, no matter what they really think themselves. They, they still kind of have to just go, you know, dance with who brung you kind of thing. Right. And Yeah. And then it's also interesting, the subjectivity that uh, as it relates to UFOs, it works with both the ET aspect and the, the spooks that people in the subculture, if, if they're into the uh the high strangeness aspect of it it's like the more they're into it the more they perceive it happens and uh the stranger things seem to be and people that are into the potential military abductions and the you know cia is tapping your phones and trying to keep you from discovering the truth or experimenting on you or or whatever their angle on it may be it's really easy to get hung up in that as well. And Mm -hmm. um, if like you're surrounded by researchers and self-described experiencers that are into that, 
it, it can be really hard to tell sometimes what some weird event might be. And I've kind of come to the uh, conclusion that like, if you're not into something like that, then you really don't have to wonder. Like if you come home and your back door is open, then you can kind of be like, well, I probably didn't close it. good," You know, <laughs> where if, if you've got all this other stuff going on, um, it, it's really, you know, tempting to get on the phone and, you know, start, start the game of telephone of, wow, what's going on with that back door open. And, uh, that, that's just interesting it, it's interesting thank you yeah your your belief i think your belief system your worldview that defines your reality and um i, I think that's what was, the point i was kind of one of the things i was really trying to make and, and drive home on that was just like that the warrens weren't necessarily charlatans um because they're worldview influenced everything that they did and that worldview was a religious belief specifically a more kind of traditionalist catholic idea and that so they would do anything uh, they would make things up in order to um, pursue that idea and like Serfiel calls like the, the noble lie basically you know, and you see a lot of that, I think, now to where like if it if it can benefit someone uh, ideologically, then I think that um, they will do anything. Yeah. You know, and it doesn't matter if they believe it or not. And I think we're seeing some of that now with people who know better, but are promoting things like the stuff QAnon talks about. Yeah. And they want this kind of open canvas to be able to work towards their goals with, even even though they know that this stuff is, is not true and dangerous. Right, right. And But I think that that also, at the same time, like it, it's something that gets into the, it, it just, it, it, it seeps into the culture, these, these different worldviews too. So, like, when I, in the presentation, I talked about how the language of people wanting ghost investigators to come to their home, the language that they most use is now prevalently demon. Because that's the concept. Because the Warrens and some of the people that they influenced have a lot of influence on paranormal culture. That's probably what happened to like yeah. UFOs or flying saucers back right. in the day when people might have just said they saw a weird light. But after flying saucers, UFOs became so popularized. I saw a UFO. I saw a flying saucer. Well, I saw an alien spacecraft. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That, you know, it's like that. That was the immediate conclusion that they jumped to. Yeah. A lot of paranoid parallels going on. Yeah, there are. There are. And that's like I was saying that I um, became so convinced that if I was going to interact with intelligence agencies, then just do it through the FOIA and with the spokespeople and like 
it, it's just on the record. Like, don't be playing gotcha with people with security clearances. Yeah, they'll get you, know? you probably in the end. <laughs> right. Yeah, right. yeah. What do you think that, like, somebody's just walking around with proof in their briefcase that if you ask them the right way, they have to, you know, <laughs> present it, you know, which is like your QAnon things of, you know, if you ask the question the right way and cite maritime law, they have to give you $10 million. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm going to tell you, Jack, we did that interview with you probably about 2017, I think, maybe even 2016, that first one. And, I mean, you called some of this because back at the time, you know, you talked about the guy that, uh, tried to kill his family or something, and he was convinced that the UFO that the that the space people were coming for him or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. And now we see this same kind of thing going on with some of these QAnon people, where like the guy that was in California uh, that killed his children because he felt that his his uh, wife had reptilian DNA and all this type of thing. I mean. When you wrote that book, I mean, it's just like you called a, th- that type of thing that these 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 kind of weird beliefs were going to start influencing people to do some really bad stuff. It just seems like too easy to tap into for bad actors not to, you know. That, yeah. Uh, in a lot of ways, I'm really grateful you know, for the internet and the, the, what it's provided me, um, with, with research opportunities and opportunities to interact with people I'd have just never met or certainly not been able to interact with to the extent I have yet at the same time. Yeah. I, I mean, it's too easy to influence people that bad actors won't do it. And that's really that, that state department, uh, memo about the Soviet scientists that was concerned about UFOs. That's what he was writing about way back in 1968 is that the Soviet public needed to reject this nonsensical idea that there were, um, alien creatures flying around in its sky. And, uh, I, I even felt like part of the State Department's interest in the article was to see how much they were being influenced, how much they weren't, and monitor some things like that. Yeah. I, I kind of felt that was part of the point of like, who cares? You know, why does the State Department, Moscow, care what? about one Soviet article any more than another. And mm-hmm. I thought the reason this one was of interest is for for propaganda and um, manipulation purposes, I felt. And it like, like even if QAnon and um, the UFO community, if those aren't entire, like let's say they are organic, just happened, uh, are completely the madness they appear to be, they would still attract the interest of intelligence agencies and adversary agencies and operatives because they just wouldn't give up the opportunity to be sowing confusion and 
mistrust of authority figures to the extent they are. Yeah, I, I think that's what's going on. I think that that's our. I mean, I think that that's what's what's happening. I think that that's. I think that these are foreign intelligence. It's all foreign intelligence disinformation. It's so easy to use the internet against us now. Yeah. Yeah. And within the UFO stuff, I mean, is when when you have distrust of the government based upon them holding back the the UFO reality, that's about other things, too. It's about, uh, you know, it's wrapped up in ideas that they're holding back uh, the free energy that is what, you know, is the right. propulsion system of these UFOs. And that's so part this, of Stephen Greer stuff. Yeah, yeah. So this evil global elite is, you know, holding us back from the technology that could bring utopia to the world, but they don't want it. And, you know, it just goes on from there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Jack, I really appreciate you coming on. We're going to continue this over on the Patreon side, but uh, please tell people where they can get the book. Sure. Um, the book is Wayward Signs, NICAP, and the IC, and it is available on Amazon. My blog is The UFO Trail. It's just a Google blog, so ufotrail.blogspot.com, and you can pretty much access the book and all my stuff from there, uh, my Twitter account, which is at the UFO Trail and stuff like that. So hope to see you guys around. Excellent. All right. Uh, Yeah, definitely check out um, Jack's books, especially Grace Have Been Framed. That's a... That's an incredible book. Highly recommended. uh, You can go back and listen to that one. Um, That's somewhere in the archives. I think that's like in the hundreds. (laughs) That's how long it's been. This is like episode 389. It doesn't seem like it. I know. It really doesn't. It really doesn't. It doesn't seem that long ago we were hanging out in Roswell together either. It does not. No, it doesn't. All right, Jack, stay on the line for us. Uh, we'll just go ahead and give the usual spiel. Yeah, guys, uh, if you want to hear the uh, continuing discussion with Jack, you can go over to patreon.com slash conspiranormal for $5 a month. You can get an extra Patreon episode every week for $10 a month. That gets you entry into the Strange Realities monthly hangout where we have presentations of some of our favorite guests and personalities associated with the show. Yeah, we'll be upgrading that soon. Yes, very soon you guys can look forward to that. And at the $20 level, you get to join the ancient circle of strange realities, learn all the secrets of the universe, as well as getting a special exclusive t-shirt. Uh, you can check that out at patreon.com slash conspiranormal. We've got a lot of exclusive t-shirts right now. Yeah, we've got so, a lot. Please, yeah, please, please join. Yeah, join. All right, guys, that's it. Uh, next time, Timothy Renner is going to be joining us. We're going to be talking about uh, a new project that he's got going on. And uh, we'll see you next week on Conspiranormal. YouTube channel.
Conspiranormal Podcast. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications at TryLifeMD.com? We're now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. It's fun to put on jeans that you couldn't get into six months ago. Every morning, I look forward to getting on the scale. For anybody who's struggling with their weight, it's a godsend. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at trylifemd.com. That's T R Y L I F E M D.com.